Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today we're continuing our sermon series, Questions, the Beginnings of Faith. If Jesus needed to pray, how much more do we need to take the time to talk to God? But just how do we do that? Join us for the message, How Do I Speak to God? Good morning and welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Now, if Jesus needed to pray, how much more do we need to do that? But how do we do that? How do we take the time to talk to God? Stay tuned for our message a little bit later about how do I speak to God? And now listen for the word of God from Luke 11, verses 1 through 13. He was praying in a certain place, and after he had finished One of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us. And do not bring us to the time of trial. And he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend And you go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, for a friend of mine has arrived, and I have nothing to set before him. And he answers from within, Do not bother me. The door has already been locked, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, at least because of his persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given you. Search and you will find knock, knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks, receives, and everyone who searches, finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be open. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for a fish, will give a snake instead of a fish? Or if the child asks for an egg, will give a scorpion? If you then, who are called evil, Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of God for the people of God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is an object of great passion and devotion. But what was it like for the human, earthly Jesus of Nazareth to be the object of great passion and devotion? For, that, for what it's worth, what is it like for any human being to be the object of great passion and devotion? Now, for most of us, being the recipient of so much adoration and reverence would just go straight to our heads. Enough people keep telling you that you're great and could do no wrong, and you'll start to believe them. And I think that's why we've seen so many politicians and religious leaders over the years that can fall so far from grace. I often think that they they must have started, or at least many of them, started out as sincere servants of God and of the people, but the adulation after a while just goes to their heads, and they end up finding themselves behaving in ways that are just totally out of step with their own deepest and most dearly held ethics and values. So how does a leader, or really how does any person, how do we keep our head on straight? How was Jesus able to accept the adoration of the people, 
but not allow himself to be deterred from his true purpose. And I really think it's too simple of a thing to simply say, well, Jesus was the Son of God, so it must have been easy for him. And I say that because the Gospels, and especially the Gospel of Luke that Kathy just read from, the Gospels are always telling us and telling us about how Jesus would frequently go off by himself to pray. Because Jesus himself seemed to need to pray in order to keep himself aligned then with God's will. And if it was true that Jesus needed prayer, how much more true is that of us? We need prayer. We are designed for prayer. We need it to function spiritually, just like we need oxygen and food to function physically. We have this inborn need to be in communion with something or someone who is greater than ourselves because we're innately spiritual beings. We, we, we yearn to touch the divine, even if sometimes we're in denial of that very reality. Now, we can relate to God in a variety of ways, and John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, called these ways of relating to God, he called them means of grace. A lot of times nowadays we call them spiritual disciplines. Wednesday evening, we rededicated our labyrinth in the fellowship hall. And walking the labyrinth is an example, a great example, of a spiritual discipline. And through the exercise of walking that labyrinth, we found ourselves growing closer to God and growing more capable of discerning God's voice and God's will. When I was at that called annual conference yesterday morning, uh, I walked by, uh, I walked by uh, Mary Beth Hardesty Crouch, former pastor of this church. And she, she grabbed me by the shoulders and said, I saw that y'all rededicated the labyrinth, and I'm so happy for you guys. Because the last time she had talked about that, I had said that we might not be able to bring it back after the renovation of our church. But I wanted to bring that note to you that Mary Beth is thrilled that we have rededicated the labyrinth. But though walking the labyrinth was a wonderful experience, the most common everyday spiritual discipline that we can participate in is simply prayer. And Jesus left us with, first of all, a phenomenal example of a life of prayer. But he also instructed his disciples, and by extension us, in how to pray. He taught us how to speak to God. The disciples of Jesus could plainly see how important prayer was to Jesus. Because one of these times when he had come back from uh, spending time by himself in time, uh, with God in time of prayer, when he came back, the disciples asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. And from this instruction, we have now what we call the Lord's Prayer. And I think it remains to this day one of the best templates for prayer that we could ever ask for. You see, in the Lord's Prayer... Jesus laid out for us a kind of a framework or a scaffold for our prayers. And the prayer itself outlines a life in discipleship kind of in miniature. Now concerning the Lord's Prayer, John Wesley wrote, This prayer, uttered from the heart and in its full and true meaning, is indeed the badge of a real Christian. And the Lord's Prayer reminds us that true prayer really is about what God wants more than what we want. Author James Mulholland writes, the point of prayer is not to tell God what we want, but, but to receive what we need. 
And this is so important to understand in a culture that caters to our every whim. Prayer isn't about me, it's about God. And so the Lord's Prayer starts with a focus on God, God's kingdom, and God's will. And so that serves to put the rest of the prayer and all of our prayers then in proper perspective. It begins with this phrase, Our Father, who art in heaven. And this first phrase sets the tone for the rest of the prayer. God is God, and we are not. And our best prayers will begin with this focus on God and with this praise. We say the word are before we say our Father. And this reminds us that even if we're by ourselves praying, we're always praying as part of a worshiping community. We're praying to our Father. We're praying as part of the body of Christ. And when we remember that God is concerned with the entire whole of humanity, I think it then guards our prayers from becoming too selfish or self-centered. Praying to God as Father emphasizes the intimate relationship of familial love that we have with God. It gives us hope uh, that that same kind of intimacy that the Son of God enjoys with the Father is now extended to us all. So we pray not just to Jesus' Father, we pray to our Father as well. And I also believe it is totally legitimate to pray to God as mother as well. I think the important thing is not to lose the metaphor of God as our parent, because I think the metaphor of parent communicates a depth of, uh, of intimacy and dependence upon God that is better than any other name, metaphor, or symbol than we can use for God. So we pray to the father or the mother who art in heaven. While this divine parent is nearby, as close as our own breath, that same parent is also the transcendent creator of the universe. And so we pray, as another author put it, Steve Harper, against the backdrop of the eternal and the unchanging. When we pray to God in heaven, we're reminded there are ultimate realities to which we are seeking to conform our lives. Now the next line, hallowed be thy name. So we praise the Lord. We bless God's holy name. We give honor that properly belongs only to the deity. And again, we acknowledge that God is God and we are not. God is first and foremost the object of our love in our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven which I believe is actually the most dangerous line in the entire prayer. Because we're praying for the coming of the kingdom. Over and above any desire or request we may make, our first allegiance is to the kingdom. That is the fulfillment of God's dream. Even if it means that we may not get what we want, or at least not what we think that we want. When we pray, thy will be done, we're telling God that we're going to listen to God's voice and then do God's will. Because I, I guarantee you that following God's will will inevitably mean that something is going to be required of us. And so when we pray this, we're opening ourselves up to this possibility that God is going to call us to be the answer to other people's prayers. So before we ever pray for ourselves, we've already praised God Acknowledge the sovereignty of God, praise the holy name, surrendered ourselves to the divine will, 
and then pleaded, uh, pledged our allegiance to the kingdom of God. Then we come to our own requests. We pray, give us this day our daily bread. We pray for what we need for now, not all that we want, not so much that now we can hoard everything, uh, not so much that we hoard the good, things, the good things of life over others. In fact, we pray for our daily bread, just like we pray to our Father. Because when we pray for our daily bread, we're praying for everyone's daily bread, including the bread for the hungry and the poor. And we pray this realizing that sometimes for others to have their daily bread means that we have to share our daily bread. We realize and affirm that social justice to our neighbor, particularly our neighbor in poverty, is inseparable from the gospel and central to the life of discipleship. Well, next we pray, forgive us our trespasses. Now, when Jesus is teaching his disciples, he just makes the assumption that they're going to need to ask for forgiveness on a regular basis. So you just make that part of the regular prayer. And sometimes trespasses is translated as debts or offenses or sins, but whichever words we use, we acknowledge the fact that we mess up all the time and that therefore we need God's forgiveness all the time. But this comes with a catch. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Ultimately, God's ability to forgive is always going to outstrip our own ability because God is ever ready and willing to forgive. And the way I understand this is that God is always graciously forgiving. However, the ability for the benefits of that forgiveness to penetrate our lives is dependent upon the openness of our hearts. Bible scholar N.T. Wright writes, the heart will not open to forgive others, excuse me, the heart that will not open to forgive others will remain closed when God's forgiveness is offered. God will forgive, but if we want that forgiveness to make any real difference in our own lives, then we also have to forgive in return. Ultimately, our relationship with God and our relationship with our neighbor, they're going to mirror one another so that the heart that is closed to its neighbor is also going to be closed to God. Last week, I preached on the idea that God has already forgiven our sins. Forgiveness is already being offered and has been offered to us as a free gift of grace. All we have to do is accept that gift. And when we accept this gift, we begin to change. Our guilt is lifted and the stain of our shame is removed. Our hearts and souls are healed and then they begin to transform. And we start to let go of that bitterness and that resentment. We start to forgive others. But sometimes we hold tight to that bitterness and resentment. Because in a way, it's more comfortable, it's more familiar. In many cases, our resentment has become simply a part of our personality. So to truly give it up can feel like we're giving up a part of ourselves. And in a way, we really are. But if we're willing to let go of that bitterness, then God can replace it with love and with peace and with joy and grace. And it's not that God refuses to forgive us unless we forgive others, because God's already forgiven us. 
It's just that if our hearts are filled with bitterness, then there's no room for God's grace to begin the transformation. The ability of God's free gift of forgiveness to penetrate our hearts and bring us peace is directed, uh, directly related to how much room that our resentments are currently taking up in our hearts. So open yourselves up to God's forgiveness, and you'll find that God's grace will start to push out all those demons of resentment and bitterness that are in the corners of all of our hearts. So relax and let God's grace penetrate you, and let God's grace heal you. But then if you refuse to do that, then God's grace can only go so far, and your heart, our hearts, will remain ensnared in our own ability, inability to forgive others. So next we pray, lead us not into temptation. Though in modern English it really is better phrased, lead us away from temptation. But here we're imploring God to protect us from evil and temptation. We pray for God's strength to enable us to live out the divine will until that kingdom of God is made fully manifest. And when we mess up, when we sin, which we will do, if we look back, if we truly are willing to take a good look back, we can usually identify that first flicker of temptation when it all began. And if we can realize in that moment, at that time, that we're headed for trouble, then we may be able, with God's help, to turn away from that temptation and keep our lives on track. So therefore, we pray that we will either not have to face temptation or that we'll be able to turn away from temptation whenever we encounter it. But knowledge of self and knowledge of God go in with that, turning away from temptation. But then ultimately being human, there are times when we're not going to be able to turn away from temptation, but rather we're just going to dive right into sin with all its consequences. And so then we pray, deliver us from evil. Once we've gotten ourselves into trouble, then we need God's help to get ourselves out of trouble, God's help to deliver us. Sometimes, sometimes we become enmeshed in evil because of the failings of others. Because the reality is there sometimes can, there can be times in our lives when we particularly feel as if we're in the presence or grip of evil. Sometimes we really do have to face down real-life monsters. So when we feel as if we're enmeshed in evil, it can be because of our failure to resist evil, because of someone else's failure to resist evil, evil, or a combination of both. We may be the victim of a heinous crime, or we may be the perpetrator of something for which we feel we can never be redeemed. But either way, when we find ourselves then mired in depression and anxiety and addiction, and we feel as if we're in this deep pit that we're never going to be able to climb out of, sometimes the only thing for us to do is to cry out to God, deliver me, for I cannot deliver myself. So while not found in either of the gospel versions of the Lord's Prayer, there's one in Matthew and Luke, the closing line of the prayer that we pray each Sunday ends with, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And this line is added, it was added by the early followers of Jesus, and the line in its entirety is just an expanded call of amen. We affirm the words we've spoken, we make them into a sacred vow. And just as the prayer begins with a focus on God and God's kingdom and God's will, the prayer now ends by returning our gaze toward God and now God's power and God's glory. The beginning and ending of the prayer put everything contained in that prayer now into proper perspective. 
Once several years ago, I was talking with a young woman, and she made the comment that stuck with me ever since. She made the comment that prayer is like playing with fire. And I was very intrigued by this analogy, because fire is, is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And so it is, in a way, playing with fire. The truth is that a life of prayer is a life where God is going to be constantly calling you and transforming you and refining you. And at times, that refinement is going to feel as if our souls are being burned by fire. So in a sense, praying is like playing with fire, because prayer ultimately takes courage. Because prayer means that you'll forever be ceding more and more control of your life over to God. And you'll have to accept the fact that you're not going to be able to control fully the outcome of your life. But ceding that control also means then that you get to live a life of adventure with God. By ceding that control over to God, you open yourself up to a life with more joy and more purpose and more love than you ever imagined. That fire of the Spirit then becomes a holy heat that warms us even in the coldest and darkest of times. Again, to quote the biblical scholar N.T. Wright, Prayer is one of life's great mysteries. At its lowest, prayer is shouting into a void on the off chance there may be someone out there listening. At its highest, prayer merges into love as the presence of God becomes so real that we pass beyond words into a sense of God's reality, generosity, delight, and grace. So the Lord's Prayer is a simple prayer, but a prayer with profound meaning. A child can recite it, but it can take a lifetime to understand its depth and certainly a lifetime to live at its promise. Arthur Emily Griffin writes, in prayer we open ourselves to the chance that God will do something with us that we had not intended. While it may not be what we intended, what God creates is more beautiful than anything that we could have done on our own, so thanks be to God for that. I've had y'all recite this before in a litany. Several years ago, the late uh, Dr. Virgil Hauer of Perkins School of Theology reimagined the Lord's Prayer, restating it, in, this ancient prayer, in new words. And so, uh, once again, I now invite you to stand as you are able and join me now in this litany that is based upon Dr. Howard's work. Our Father, who art in heaven, God, you are Father and Mother to each of us, but nearer than our own breath. Hallowed be thy name. Make yourself the center of our world and of our lives. Thy kingdom come. Reign over us and among us. Thy will be done. Let your creative and life-giving will and dream for us. On earth as it is in heaven, Give us this day our daily bread. Make every light of bread a taste of your loving presence. And forgive us our trespasses. Don't make us relive our failures day after day. As we forgive those who trespass against us. And help us not to make others relive their own failures. Lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from evil. But show us the way out of the cycle of violence that threatens to destroy us. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Because your reign 
Amen. And I'll remind you again, I said this last week, I really recommend this. Sometime during the season of Lent, read a gospel all the way through. You might be surprised, even if you've read it before, how much more you'll get out of it again, because we always get something new every time we read the scriptures. And so now I'll receive this benediction. Go forth knowing that God goes before you as you face temptation and trial. Believe that God's power and glory will lead you into the kingdom. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope today's service was a blessing to you. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next Sunday, we'll be welcoming a special guest preacher, my very good friend, the Reverend Dr. Greg Neal. You can always access our services through our website, tumcd.org, our Facebook page, and our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. If you like what you're hearing, you can also support our ministry with your gift through our website, tumcd.org. God bless you in the week ahead, and we'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church, 11.30.